Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krauss. I hope you're feeling happy, healthy, and safe. We have a really jam-packed show for you this week. Later on, Anthony Q. Farrell joins us. He's a former stand-up comedian who's written for a show you may have heard of, a little thing called The Office. He was the executive story editor on Little Mosque on the Prairie, and he's also known for his work as a writer on the Nickelodeon sitcom The Thundermans. He's back with two new shows, The Parker Andersons and Amelia Parker, and you'll find both those on the Super Channel. What makes these shows unique is that they are two standalone series, uh, comedy series, each with their own storylines and episodes, but they're connected by larger, overarching plot lines tying the two independent shows together. Complicated? Not really. We'll give you all the details just a little bit later on. Then Lucas Hedges, the Oscar-nominated actor who stars in French Exit opposite Michelle Pfeiffer, joins us to talk about his claim that he took on the role of a son of a soon-to-be-broke Manhattan socialite because he wanted to be bored while playing a character. We'll get to that in just a little while. First up, though, anyone who listens to this show knows that I love New York City. I love the buzz I feel when I go there. We have friends there and we miss it in these days of travel restrictions. A substitution to actually going there this past year came in the form of Craig Taylor's new book, New Yorkers, A City and Its People in Our Time. Taylor is a chronicler of some of the world's greatest cities. His book, Londoners, was called the best book about London in at least a decade. And the new book on New York City, which is made up of profiles of bodega cashiers, hospital nurses, elevator repairmen, uh, emergency dispatchers, the people who wire the lights at the top of the Empire State Building, who clean the windows of Rockefeller Center and keep the subway running. It's all about them. It's a book about the New York you don't often read about and it's getting rave reviews the independent called it jaw-dropping enthralling start spreading the news taylor's book is a stunning work of modern social history i caught up with craig taylor via zoom from his home in british columbia can you explain uh the process how, literally how you go about writing a book like this which is so uh far-ranging and it seems like it took a very long time to write yeah, I, I wrote a book um, that came out in 2012 called Londoners, where I had interviewed a lot of um, different people in that city. And after that, I was given the chance to go to New York and speak to 200 New Yorkers. And uh, I leapt at that opportunity. I mean, it was very daunting, obviously. I landed and looked around and saw all these people rushing past and had no idea how to speak to them. But um, I rely on verbs. Um, I have this list of verbs that can be applied to, to New York City. And so I, I just use those verbs to find people cutting New York or cleaning New York or policing New York. And that allowed me to, to find people who were enacting things in the city. Um, and uh, and it, was a good, it was a good way to gain some sort of grasp on the project. So as you arrive in New York, you don't know exactly who you're going to be speaking to. No, no, I have nobody really on my list. So it's, um, it's a very organic process and it, and it just leads from one person to the next. Um, the big thing was just going out every single day and trying to make something happen. I knew that right. that would lead to um, meeting some people there. And tell me about that. I mean, do you see someone 
sweeping up in Central Park and you think that guy must have a story and you just cold call them, approach them and, and what kind of response do you get? Yeah, sometimes it is exactly that. And um, it can be, um, yeah, it can be daunting, um, but I think you just have to keep reaching out to people. Mm -hmm. New York becomes uh, this series of endless possibilities. You look around and think, oh, maybe that butcher or maybe that pest control officer. And um, I realize now that when I go back there, I'll be able to experience it in a different way. I'll be much more relaxed because I won't be looking around and thinking, oh, maybe I should speak to him or her or them. Well, it's interesting that this book is coming out now as we uh, reach 13 months of a lockdown, one certainly that has affected New York uh, in, a, in an extraordinary way. So I would suggest that the New York that you left and that you wrote about in this book probably won't be the one exactly that you're heading back to when you visit after all this is over. Absolutely. It's a constantly changing place. And this pandemic has only accelerated a lot of these changes for better or for worse. So um, this is definitely a, a, a social history. It is history. It's not, it's not even up to date right now, but it does touch on some of the big, big events in the past 20 years. Um, and I think that's all you can ask for. You know, you were, you were there for a, a point in time. You know, no one can live in New York eternally. You're there for your you're uh, allotted time and you do what you can. And, and, uh, and so hopefully, you know, this book will remind people. Of that. You're listening to my interview with Craig Taylor, author of New Yorkers, a city and its people in our time available wherever fine books are sold. I thought of uh, Joseph Mitchell. Do you know that he used to write for the New Yorker and he wrote such brilliant pieces about Greenwich Village, about the Lower East Side, Alphabet City, and uh, in particular, a story which is then later turned into a book about McSorley's old Irish alehouse, which is to me a classic. And I was kind of put in the mind of that uh, because these aren't stories about what happens at the Met Ball. These aren't stories um, that we see covered on television all the time. This is kind of the flip side of all of that. And I think equally fascinating, uh, but and probably, quite honestly, more colorful than it would have been had you been walking down the, the, the halls of power uh, to write this book. Yeah, absolutely. Um, th- those who speak in official language are, are just <laughs> deaf to, to this type of project. You want to stay away from PR people. You want to yeah. stay away from local government. You want to stay away from people who are just meant to you know, bleach their language of, of anything interesting. Um, Mitchell is a huge hero of mine and uh, and a guiding light in, in, in a way, because although I, I dearly would have loved to have seen the New York that he describes in his books, um, it's, it's his way of going about New York. It's his way of going into the city, listening to people who are not uh, the, the uppercased, bold-faced names of the city that I found was important. And it was also a consolation too, knowing that Mitchell had this incredible New York. He he lived it, he wrote about it, he brought it to life, but he didn't get the New York that I got. He wasn't there in, in 2017, 2018. And, and that's, you know, that's the gift too, that even the masters, even the great New York writers do not get this version of New York, do not get this individual across the table from you. So that was a consolation in some ways. 
you're more of a character in this book, I think, than you were in the other books. Uh, it, I mean, I, I guess it's just an organic thing. It happens. Uh, tell me a little bit about the process of, of inserting yourself or, or writing about yourself. Well, New York, to me, was always a city of implication. You know, you, you were brought into the story. You couldn't kind of hover above it as this all-seeing, all-knowing presence. Um, the interviews were, were much more interactive. People challenged me. People asked me about my life. People said, how are you going to understand my experience as a white man, as a, you know, as a middle-class person, as a, you know, there was more of a sense of being drawn in because you couldn't keep yourself at, at arm's length. And, and partway through this process, I realized that there was no way I wanted to disappear in this book. Um, I needed to be there either in outline or explicitly there in parts of the book. And I, and I hope that it just, it talks about my own New York journey as well, because you just, you cannot live there for, for that long and be that involved with the city and come away unchanged or unscathed. So, so my own experience was important to include. Well, uh, in the church, they call you the Canadian. There's a, there's a great deal of talk about how you are a Canadian and not a New Yorker. How do you think uh, living there and working on this book and talking to so many people changed you? And did it make you a little bit more of a New Yorker than you were when you arrived? Well, you know, in the pyramid, in the great pyramid of life for, for a New Yorker, the New Yorker is on the top and, and everything else kind of flows down. So I was, uh, I was made fun of incessantly for being a Canadian, for being, uh, you know, this, this outsider. And, and, it, you know, it's helpful. It's helpful to be that way when you're doing, when you're doing documentary work, because people explain things to you. You are not the know-it-all. You are the, the person who doesn't know anything. Um, and as far as changes, I mean, I, I felt profoundly changed after this experience. I think I, I knew going into it that in speaking to so many New Yorkers, I'd understand very practical elements of the city. I'd be told where to get the best bagels. And, yeah, yeah. you know, I'd be told about the streets in Queens. But what I didn't, what I didn't bet on was, was being given this education and how to be a human being and how to learning compassion, learning how to exist in the city, how to see strangers, how to accept the other in our lives, because no matter who you are, you can find your other in New York. And so there were some very profound, deep experiences uh, taught to me by these people. And, and that for me was, was the greatest part of doing this project. I think New York is a great example of the great social contract that people make when you live in a place that's very crowded, that's very busy, where you have people from everywhere in a relatively small space, you have to make a social contract with yourself and with others. Uh, it, otherwise, you would drive yourself mad living there, I think. And so part of what you're talking about, I think, comes from just that congestion and all the noise and everything. And it shapes you into someone who uh, either is driven mad by it or learns to live with it and thrive with it. Absolutely. Well put. I mean, you, you could go mad there. <laughs> yeah. Or you could embrace this sense of proximity. And, mm -hmm. and what I think New York gives is this proximity to these incredible people who you can sit across them on the subway and, and think, how did you become this way? Why do you dress this way? Why do you move this way? You know, for, 
for all the ways that we're siloed these days in our lives, New York is the great breaker of silos. You are in the mix with all these others. And, and I, I loved that, you know, I, I love that and I miss it in these pandemic times being mm. in that mix. Did you write most of this book during pandemic or how does, the, how does a, a project like this work when you work on it for years? Are you writing the whole time? Are you gathering information the whole time? Uh, tell me a little bit about that part of it. Yeah, the, the book was almost in some ways finished before the pandemic hit. Um, I, I worked on it. It's a little bit like sculpture. You go out and gather all this material, far more material than you're ever going to need. And then the, there's the process of chipping away and shaping it. I work with an extraordinary editor at Norton, Matt Wyland, who's been with me for three books and who doesn't deal with the street level noise, but just deals with what's on the page and right. tells me this works and this doesn't. And so I, I'm very, I'm very pleased to have someone like that in my life. Um, but the pandemic then swooped in and we knew that it would have to become part of the book. And it became a big section in the book, including the words of uh, a dear interviewee who I had known already for years, uh, a public defense, public injury, personal injury lawyer <laughs> from Queens who um, drove me around in his minivan for years. And um, and then, unfortunately, got the virus and had to um, go into hospital. It was very serious. And he tells the story of his of his fight, which I think is a very New York story of setting up a chair across from him and addressing the chair as it's as if it's the virus and saying to this empty chair, you think you can come into New York City? You think you're going to take this beautiful city away from us? You know, you got another thing coming. Get back on that seven train, and, and it, for me, it's still a very emotional part of yeah. of, of the book. Uh, how do you make people comfortable when you meet them? When you cold call someone, how do you get them to talk to you? There's really no there's no magic to yeah. it. it. It's purely time. Um, in this world of, uh, of speedy journalism, it's very rare that you're afforded time to just spend with people, but there's no way you can do a project like this without just being around people and mm -hmm. speaking to them and, and listening and listening and listening. And, and um, yeah, I, I would love to say that there's some other way to do it, but uh, there isn't. And I feel so lucky to be, to have stumbled upon this way of working where I, I'm given time to just to just be with people because something arises from that. You're listening to my interview with Craig Taylor, author of New Yorkers, A City and Its People in Our Time, available now wherever fine books are sold. And you meet uh, interesting characters. If this was a documentary, you would be casting these characters, I suppose, as you find them. But uh, the the blind man who walks the, the length of, of uh, Manhattan and talks about the sounds and the smells and things is an incredible character, an incredible find. And it's a, it's a, a really powerful and kind of interesting way uh, to kick the book off. I wanted to start the book with the five senses and Frank Senior, who's a singer who is blind, um, was just so good at talking about the New York that he smelled and that mm -hmm. he heard. And he was able in a way to give me a history of, of recent New York through the smells, going back to the stench of Times Square in the 80s, yeah. to, the, to the awful smell of the waters around New York when they were polluted. And then up through, you know, 
the beautiful smell of Central Park in midsummer and the and and I love the way he describes all the sunscreens going past, you know, all of these humans, but they are sunscreens to him. And he <laughs> talks of one woman who's who's almost like a ghost because yeah. she doesn't wear anything. She's just a presence passing by. And so he was a, a an extraordinary person to stumble into. London, you've crossed that one off the list. New York, what what's next? There's such uh, there's such big chunks of time. Um, I'm, I'm really not sure. I'm not sure where this will all head. It's a, it's a great skill to have. It doesn't need to be applied necessarily to cities, but, but cities are, you know, worth celebrating and, mm. and the way that they operate, what they give to people, what they turn people into. Um, I, I love it. I love the process. And so I haven't really made my mind up yet, but, um, but I'm sure there will be another city. I was talking to a musician friend a little while ago, and he was talking about putting together a touring band, someone that you're going to be spending a year or two years with on the road, probably in a van, you know, if you're lucky. And he said, I don't always pick the best players. I pick the people I want to hang with. And I think that's probably what you have to think of. Do you want to live in this city for three or four years to write a book about it? That has to be part of your uh, uh, your decision-making process. Absolutely. And that's what, that's what led me to truly global cities like London and, and New York. I mean, I was living in London anyway, but these places are, are extraordinary powers, what they, what they do, what they offer you. And so, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I would love to go back to New York and do, and do more. I'm, you never really end a New York project. These people still have their, you know, their, we're still in contact all the time. So. Yeah, what I love about New York so much, and, and we're only an hour away, and when uh, we can, we go often. Uh, obviously, for the last year or so, we haven't. Uh, but we know people there, and, and, and we've gotten to know uh, people in restaurants and bars, which for me is always such a great way to get to know a city. Um, if you go to McDougal Street, there's a great little Italian place called Monty's that's been there forever. And whenever you go there, it's the same five guys sitting at the bar. <laughs> and, and, and it's just, there's a great familiarity about it. And I love that it seems kind of like it's preserved in amber or something, while everything else around it, Greenwich Village is changing so much all around it. Uh, but there's these little gems of places that just feel untouched by time. And for me, that's the, that's the stuff that, that I look for and try and find. Absolutely. And it's something worth fighting for too, as New York changes, it's yeah. just so important to recognize those, those places that offer that, that feeling of, of return and of, of welcome. Well, uh, thanks so much for this, Craig. Uh, what a pleasure. Uh, great book. Lovely. Where are you right now? I'm on Protection Island, which is just off of Nanaimo in Vancouver. Wow. wow. So, 300 people on the island. It's, it's very different from New York City. That was Craig Taylor, author of New Yorkers, A City and Its People in Our Time, available now wherever fine books are sold. Now from Craig to a legendary journalist who chronicled New York City's nightlife in the 70s and 80s with her magazine, Rock Scene. Here's Lisa Robinson. This was totally my late husband, Richard Robinson's idea. He would see Women's Wear Daily when I would bring it home. And he would see photos of rich women coming out of fancy restaurants with just captions under them. Mm. And it was a column called I, and E-Y-E. And he said, we ought to do this about rock and roll musicians. 
And I said, oh, Richard, don't be ridiculous. Nobody's going to care about that. He said, I think we could do it. And we could do funny, snarky captions. And we could take a lot of pictures of you and people at parties or us at CBGB's. And just he talked someone into agreeing to publish it. And we would put these pictures in of me literally at parties with David Bowie or talking to Lou Reed at CBGB's or the Ramones in the subway or talking heads at the supermarket. We did crazy, crazy <laughs> stuff like that. We just thought this thing went out there and nobody ever saw it except the people at the CBGB scene. Mm -hmm. It became like a kind of house organ for that scene along with Punk Magazine at the time. And then years later, musicians like Michael Stite in Athens before he formed R.E.M., or maybe at the beginning of R.E.M., or Chrissy Hind in Akron, Ohio, before she went to London and formed The Pretenders. Nick Rhodes in Duran Duran in Birmingham, England, told me he would run to his newsagent, as he put it, to get Roxine, and they all would say to me, we want to come to New York and go to parties <laughs> and meet Lisa Robinson and David Bowie, and I just thought it was hysterical that it has achieved that kind of sort of mythic thing. That was lifelong New Yorker Lisa Robinson talking about Roxene, one of the most influential music magazines of the 70s and 80s. Right now, award-winning showrunner Anthony Q. Farrell joins us. He's written for everyone from The Office to the Nickelodeon sitcom The Thundermans, and he's here now to talk about his two new comedies on the Super Channel. The Parker Andersons follows the heartfelt story of a newly blended interracial family, while Amelia Parker centers around the quietest member of the family as she navigates the teen world around her. What makes these shows unique is that they are two standalone comedy shows, each with their own storylines and episodes, but are connected by overarching plot lines tying the two independent shows together. Kind of imagine the Marvel Universe and how Iron Man and Thor and everyone seems to fit into the same story, even though they're all in separate films. We'll get to more of this in just a second. First, let's hear it explained by Anthony Q. Farrell. We have seen shows that share DNA before, like, I guess, the Frasier spinoff on Cheers. Uh, there's Blackish, Grownish, and Mixish, but this is different. So tell me about the idea behind the structure of the Parker Andersons and Amelia Parker. They're two separate shows, but they exist in the same world. Absolutely. So the idea basically, it's almost like you have a show and you have it spin off right away. You know what I mean? It's kind of like that. It's, it's a, uh, I gotta give, you know, credit to the creator. It, it, it feels like you've kind of like got an interesting way to kind of tell a lot of stories um, in a, in a quick, quick way. The, yeah, it feels to me like one of those things where a lot of people were doing TV shows and then and then internet contents that tied to the show. And that feels like it kind of was the beginning of this process where you're just kind of taking the extra content you would have put on the web and you're making it its own television series. Um, and that's partly because the characters are so strong and they're so interesting and you just want to find out more about them. And there's just really, there's, there's too much to tell in 22 minutes. So we, <laughs> thankfully we have 44. And people don't have to watch one or the other. I mean, preferably, you'd like them to watch both. Yeah. But each is a standalone uh, show as well. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the idea is that 
you can watch the Parker Andersons get a great story about the family, or you can watch Amelia Parker and get a great story about Amelia Parker and with a little bit of the family mixed in. If you watch them both, you kind of get little Easter eggs that kind of connect to both shows. And obviously you get a, a richer experience. I had a, a, a kid show on called Secret Life of Boys on BBC. And we did a, uh, we had the first two seasons were interactive. And we had a bunch of extra content that you could actually see if you were watching it on the web. But if you didn't watch it on the web, you watched it on TV, you'd still get the whole story with just 22 minutes. But if you watched it on the web, you'd get extra content. So it kind of feels like that was also a little, my experience with that helped with this a little bit because I was used to, I was used to telling stories in, in different ways. Well, it sounds incredibly complicated from your point of view. You're the showrunner on this. Is it twice the amount of work or is it like a hundred times the amount of work to make sure that it all fits together? It, I would say halfway, maybe it's like <laughs> different. Like it times work. It, it is difficult, but I love I love puzzles. Like I, my my degree, I have a degree from Queen's University. I was major in theater and a minor in math. So I'm always I'm always looking for puzzles and right. numerical things to to keep my my brain interested. This was one of those things where we just had we figure out the Amelia Parker story for Amelia. We figure out a good family story for Parker Anderson. So then for the B stories, that's kind of where we had the most fun trying to figure out which B story would go where, like. Is this feel more of a Parker Anderson right. B story? Is it feel more of an Amelia Parker B story? And we had the whole family we had um, to, to, to draw from. We also had uh, Amelia Parker. She has two best friends that we had stories about. So there's there are a lot of characters to service. So it, it helped to um, to have that much time to, to do it with. Do you think that this is the kind of storytelling now that people are... Uh, looking for, we've seen it in the Marvel universe, which is kind of like a big spider web of films that all relate to one another. Uh, is this the the way moving forward that people want these expanded universes? I, you know, I can see it taking off. I can see it. I can see it. It's kind of like when, um, you know, like when the UK, when they were doing mockumentaries, like the, mm -hmm. the UK office and how that kind of like, sp sp you know, spawned a bunch of different TV shows that decided, you know what, we're gonna do this documentary style of uh, storytelling in the scripted world. I feel like this is one of those things that I think some people will look at it and be like, I think we can do something with our story that fits this this format. So I don't know. I mean, I I think it's a it's a fun format to, to play in. I hope so. It's an interesting sandbox for sure. You're listening to my interview with Anthony Q. Farrell, showrunner of the Parker Andersons and Amelia Parker on the Super Channel. Absolutely. Now you've put together a diverse team of writers. Uh, the, the cast is very diverse. But what was interesting to me is that they all have varying degrees of experience. And that uh, from my understanding, my reading, is that they were hired uh, as to what experiences and authenticity they would bring to the work that they're doing. Uh, as the person doing the hiring, how do you uh, adjudicate that? Well, first of all, you, for me, when I'm hiring writers, I read their scripts first and figure out, is this a good writer? And then there are a lot of really, really great writers out there, especially um, in the city. And then once I've done that, I usually interview people and talk to them, figure out how they can bring something to the table that I don't have uh, that would be helpful to the show. So we have, for instance, um, Ian Stamen, this was his first, this was his first uh, show. He was actually born in the UK uh, and, and lives here now. So that was, I, I was like, well, I have ties to the UK, obviously through my, my family and through working there, but it'd be great to have somebody who, who grew up there to, to be able to speak to that. Right. Um, we had uh, Mary Peters, who is a, who's a black woman, obviously with Amelia being, uh, with the family being black and 
I mean, being black, it was great to have a black woman in the room to be able to speak to that. Um, yeah, like everyone had like had uh, ways in uh, for the show, and I felt like for me, it's one of those things. Regardless of how much experience you have, are you a good writer? Are you a good team person? Are you going to uh, be able to 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 come into the show and, and bring something to it? And the one thing I always tell my writers is that I'm fallible. Don't be afraid to tell me when I'm wrong about something. I want to know because it's better to find out in the room <laughs> than to find out on Twitter six months from now. So, <laughs> you know, so I'm always like, aired, yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean, I feel like it's important for, for the writers who are part of the room to, to, to feel like they're in a safe space to be able to tell me even that, I'm, yeah, you know, I think we should do something different here. I was like, all right, cool. Let's, let, let's go that way and figure it out. I felt like it was important. It's one of the reasons when I moved back to Canada, I realized there was, there are not a lot of upper level BIPOC writers in the comedy, um, in the comedy scripted world. So I took it upon myself, like when I started being able to hire people to be able to coach them in a way and train them so that they can become showrunners themselves. And that's one of the things that that worked for me when I was a young writer, having showrunners who were like, no, go go and be a producer on this episode. Go to the go to go to the mix, um, be on set, do all these things, like help us cast. All those things that are important to you know being a showrunner, I make sure that all my writers do as well so that they're ready to do it themselves when they when they move on up. So I think mentoring is so important uh, in in an industry that often uh, is just get it done, get out there and get it done, and and people don't take the time to pass along what they've learned. And I think it's vitally important. I completely agree. I mean, I wouldn't be here if it weren't for that. So I feel like there's a way to. That's kind of like a way to kind of you know pay it forward. The shows uh, will have important storylines about race, uh, acceptance, and tolerance. Uh, tell me about finding a balance between the comedy that's inherent in the shows and then tackling some very heavyweight and important topics. It's something that I like doing, you know what I mean? I Our lives are so filled with both comedy and drama just in real life. Like I think it's it's natural to to write to that because it's, you, you just figure you think of these characters as real people and it's easy to try to think of stories where things are happen that are great things happen that are terrible and you you navigate those situations the same way you would in real life so uh it was imperative to me to make these characters as real and as grounded as possible and in in doing so i felt like we had to deal with those things like grief and tolerance and you have um you have a a black man and a white woman together, they're gonna have these conversations. I have a lot of friends who, you know, a lot of friends and family members who are in, in uh, you know, in, in, in diverse families and blended families. So, uh, and they deal with this all the time. So it felt like you, we had an opportunity to do it. So it was like, let's do it. Let's let's make a show that's going to, that's going to talk about things that, you know, you, you really can't talk about in other shows. That was Anthony Q. Farrell. Check out his two new shows, The Parker Andersons and Amelia Parker on the Super Channel. You know my next guest from his Academy Award nominated performance in Manchester by the Sea. And you've seen him in movies like Lady Bird and Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. His latest film, French Exit, has him starring opposite Michelle Pfeiffer. He joins us to talk about the claim that he took the role of the son of a soon-to-be-broke Manhattan socialite because he wanted to be bored while playing a character. When I came to Paris the first time, Merci beaucoup. something sent up an alert. It was the presentiment of what was to come. 
tell me about creating a character that is so different than anything else that you've ever played. Well, I couldn't do any of it without the blueprint. It sounds cliche, but it's true. I couldn't do any of it without the blueprint of the script because at the end of the day, I don't choose what the character does. The character does it. I just do what the character does. So there's a certain amount of obedience that, that comes into play with acting. Um, and I, I like well, the reason why I was drawn to it is I wanted it's, it, there's, it's cool to be obedient to uh, a character who doesn't have anything to say. Like the, it's a different kind of obedience because it's, I think I feel I'm a deeply, I'm a people pleaser to a fault. And that comes into play when playing roles. So, cause I, I try to get it right, but it's weird. It's almost like there's nothing to get right with this character. He was just a, he, he's sort of like a wet potato. So I, I enjoyed that. And, and are there nerves that come along with that? Because I think that, and I'm not an actor, but I would think that you want to try and, bring as much to every character that you play. But in this case, it felt like you're taking, you're subtracting. Yeah. yeah. And that almost seems counterintuitive to me, but you're the but guy. That's what I liked, man. That's like, cause I'd just done like six movies where they were whirlwind, crazy, wild, emotional characters. And mm -hmm. I wanted to be bored <laughs> in front of the camera. Like that's just, I think the best actors are good at being bored. Right. Because we, we, we like to see people think. We like to see people not want to say things in front of the camera. We like to see the things – I think we most want to see the things that actors usually are least capable of giving, which is not crying, which is being bored. What role does a dream couch coach play yeah. in the process of creating a character like Malcolm? Helping provide a space for me – to, to travel into my subconscious and into the, the realm of images where my inspiration comes from and to help basically go like, oh, like really just, just create a space for my imagination to run free so that I can be connected to this character on multiple planes, uh, which, which whether it works or not or whatever, I don't know the exact impact, but sometimes as an actor, I want my life to feel more like an art project. Mm. And, and sometimes the acting world doesn't always feel, it can feel sometimes, sometimes sterile. So I want to infuse it with as much color and creativity as possible. And so the process is that you write letters to the characters, you dream about them and then interpret them through a dream coach. That, that is one aspect of it. Right. It's not how I worked on this project. Uh, I didn't, I haven't, you, the, the letter writing is something that has happened, but isn't something, yeah, is not something I did. I, I, I did work with her, but we didn't do the dreams. You're listening to my interview with French Exit star Lucas Hedges. Find the movie in theaters and soon on VOD. In this film, and, and I'm speaking in generalities here, not giving anything away, but there will be a point in Malcolm's life, in your character's life, when he is not with his mother. He has been so codependent yeah. on her. Uh, do you think that he will be able to make his way through uh, the world without her? I have no <laughs> clue what he is going to do. Yeah. This is where it's like, I, I, to be totally honest, I think he's lost. I think he'll be lost, but 
I think the, the, the film depends on that not being true, mm. actually. It's like, if anything, he has a good heart. I know that. And hopefully that'll take him somewhere. What's she paying you? Paying me. Aren't you her gigolo? Oh, God, no. That's my mother. <laughs> well, when I was initially approaching this movie, I knew a little bit about it. And I thought that it was going to be a much different movie than the one that I actually saw. And I loved, and the thing that sort of made it click for me is uh, Madame Reynard says, I believe that friendship is a greater force for good than any religion ever was. Okay. And then I realized that that movie is not just about some oddball socialites in New York who lost their money and have to find their way through. It really is about looking to make connections with other people. And yeah. the weird little family that gets thrown together at the end of this movie is really lovely to see. Yes, I, dude, I completely agree. And I think Patrick's sort of the king of coming up with lines like that. It's just such a weird movie how it's about these two people who move to Paris and then a bunch of people just move in and start living with them for no reason other than they enjoy each other's company and life is better with, the, with each other's presence. And uh, so I think you're right. It's all gone. Every penny. What was your plan? My plan was to die before the money ran out, but I kept and keep not dying, and here I am. Michelle Pfeiffer is absolutely terrific in this film. You share many scenes with her, many, many scenes with her. You must have read the script first. Did she bring something that you found unexpected to the performance after having read the script? Well... I think what she brought to it, I think the character is inherently unexpected. Hmm. There is, and when done right, her very existence is captivating. But the, 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 there's nothing about how well something is written that guarantees that. So what's unexpected about what she did was that she realized it. And in realizing it, she had to create something that was a living, breathing organism that... Um, that was like a fireworks display to witness. So that, that, that's always the, the, the alchemy, the, the mystery, mysterious alchemy of acting is creating that. And she did. So that's what I'll say. I just, she, she created it. So this movie was clearly shot pre pandemic. And uh, I looked at your resume and your IMDb and you, in the last number of years previous to the, the pandemic, you made, six movies back to back and there was a play in there. Also, you were so busy. How has the pandemic been for you? Is it a nice time to sit back and reflect as your work still continues to come out to theaters and VOD or uh, what's it been like for you? It's been a lot of, I've been, I've focused much more on reading than I have on filmmaking actually. And um, I, I'll say that um I, uh, I look forward to being with people soon. I think we're, we're seeing now that it's going to happen soon with the vaccines. But um, I, uh, it's, it, oh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm doing very well, and I wasn't for a while. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I'm doing very well now, and I'm very grateful for the weird lessons I've learned from this time. That was Lucas Hedges. You can see his really good work playing Malcolm, the kind of layabout son in French Exit in theaters and very soon on VOD. Check it out. It's really worth a look.
A big thanks to Lucas for spending some time with us. Also, I want to thank Anthony Q. Farrell. Check out his new shows, The Parker Andersons and Amelia Parker on the Super Channel. And of course, a big thanks goes to Craig Taylor. Find his book, New Yorkers, A City and Its People in Our Time, wherever you buy fine books. As always, though, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe, and we'll talk again soon.